0: How did the apostles ever manage without this stuff, eh? I'll start again. I was born in Everton, which is uh, in Liverpool. And as you know, we've got two great football teams in Liverpool, Everton and Everton Reserves. <laughs> Just get that over. And uh, and it's not incidental to my faith. I don't come from a Christian home uh, in the sense of my dad's non-practicing Catholic, mum. Uh, kind of church of england which in liverpool meant the good catholics got up and went to mass and the good prods like us stayed in bed and enjoyed the church bells <laughs> and uh, and when i was uh, about 14 somebody bought a bible for me for a christmas present i didn't think of reading it to one of my mates my uh, my dad's mates said it was one book as he looked at it, this christmas present and said one book he'd like to read from cover to cover and suddenly into my young fertile brain a great plan was hatched because but, because this time I was a fanatical sort of supporter, season ticket holder. I'd go to the game, and I would read five or six match reports, and I could tell you the name of the referee's mother-in-law's window cleaner by the end of that, you know? And so I thought, if I read the Bible every day, God would help me and help Everton. Titty ye not, because that particular year, we won the FA Cup, and you're saying, you're obviously doing a lot of Bible reading at the moment, they're doing pretty well as well. But actually, uh, I decided I'd read three chapters a day, double it at weekends, and get to the Psalms, and I'd read five of them a day, because I didn't know about Psalm 119 with 176 <laughs> verses. And i popped those at five a day and 10 at the weekends. Um, and I'd say, and during that time, five months in, Everton were in a cup final, losing 2-0, and I can remember saying, oh God, if you let Everton score, I'll say the Lord's prayer, I through 250 times. And we scored three goals, and it took me all the way home on a coach to say 750 Lord's Prayers. <laughs> Enter a big lesson. If you strike a bargain with God, you probably will find you've got more than you bargained for. So I thought, well, this is great. We've won the cup. England won the World Cup. Unfortunately, Liverpool won the league, a reminder of the first point of Calvinism, total depravity. And so I, <laughs> I, uh, I started reading again. And it was a second time round. Now, we lived in inner city Liverpool. This, you know, greenery, the only green we had was our front door, okay? Had no gardens, and, and even that was a problem because it was maroon. So, you know, there was no, it was inner city, tough back to back terraced houses. And I'm reading about bringing a sacrificial lamb to get rid of your sins. Where'd you find a lamb in the middle of Liverpool besides the butchers? I looked at the cat once or twice, but that's a, you know. <laughs> It's called contextualization when you do missiology. We won't go there. And I thought, where can I find a lamb for my sins? Somebody invited me along to play football, local little mission hall, and it was there. Long story short, I discovered the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad, and I found in Him a resting place, and He has made me glad. So if you're a miserable sinner, tough on you. I'm delighted to be a forgiven one, welcomed into God's forever family, to know where I've come from, where I fit in, and where I'm going because of the Lord Jesus. So I'm never getting over the fact that I've been converted and rescued by uh, the short and curlys and pulled out of the back streets of Liverpool. You are looking at what uh, the sociologists call redemptive lift. Now, there's a lot of me still to be lifted, and unfortunately, I'm getting to that age where I'm becoming a down and out. It's moving down and out. But I am am redemptively lifted and all the good things in my life I thank God for Jesus for. Um, I'm married. um, My first wife uh, is uh, Brenda. She's my contemporary one and my only one of 37 years. We have two kids, Paul and Ruth. Paul is in his uh, early mid-30s and uh, Ruth is a bit younger and she's provided us with three grandchildren, Josh who's five, Annabelle, Princess Annabelle who's uh, eight. And uh, Big Dan, and he is da- big. Uh, next month he'll be 14. All through his 13th year, he's gone up a bit more now. He's six foot four and a half inches tall. So I'm at a stage where I didn't, I, didn't get, I don't hand him my, you know, hand me downs. I get his hand me ups. You know, so <laughs> I've now got the best football boots I've ever had in my life because he, you know, he's outgrown them size 12. So that's the Brady bunch, um, and uh, it's been my privilege. Uh, to to be able to speak to believers all around the UK and different parts of the world. And I am so delighted to be with you this weekend as we we open up and look at God's Word together. Um, I'm praying that God will uh, deeply impact each of our lives afresh as we encounter Him uh, through His Word. And one of the lasting impressions I do want to leave with you, this sounds like, um, you know, kind of, I was always amazed by my dear friend, uh, George Verwer, whenever he went anywhere. I don't even you you come across George Verwer, operation, unforgettable, you know. So you really need this book? You know, I didn't even take a tie for this book. And off he goes, bang, smack, wow. And he'd always turn up with books because books are really important. And uh, I have brought one particular book, and this is a a freebie which goes with it. Um, I'd like to sign you all up for courses at Moreland's. Uh, We've never had bigger numbers, we've got about 170, undergrads, about 80 master's students, uh, and we've just got an okay for setting up our first regional center along in the center of culture, civilization, science, technology, and learning called Bridgewater. Um, But uh, there's a whole group down there where we're going to be doing ministry, and we're looking to to plant hubs. I'd like to sign you all up for for courses. I can't do that. Um, But one of the next best things I can offer you is this called Open Your Bible, the all-in-one Bible guide. And uh, why should you have a copy? Well, let me tell you, if you're a smart pastor, you nip to the back and you buy out the whole lot. And then you don't let anybody near it because you've got 20 years of sermon material in here. It's just (laughs) straight off. It's in four sections. The first section, about 100 pages, deals with the Lord Jesus, who He is, His officers, and everything else. The next section goes through every Bible book. Back on that in a moment. Then it does every major Christian doctrine and then actually living the Christian life. So, I mean, take the Bible books. Um, What do you know about, say, the book of Numbers? Okay. Well, what is its key? So I'll give you a whole pile of introduction information, then it'll give you key themes like the kingdom of God, the discipline of God, the promises of God, the miracles of God. Okay, fine. So what's the book of Numbers got to do with you in the early 21st century? What's it got to do with the church? Relevance for today. Are you listening carefully? Beware of grumbling. Well, thankfully that never happens in churches, does it? (laughs) Beware of living in the past. Well, that doesn't happen either, does it? Some folk never got over the fact that the minister left in 1954 and all the others have been losers. I know those feelings. Beware of thinking God's rules don't apply to you. Yes, sir, Pastor. It, it, others would call it adultery, but we call it a, a mutually authenticating emotional experience. And, and God understands. Listen, God understands the devil. That doesn't legitimatize it. Any pastor, any Christian gets that kind of nonsense fired at him or her all the time. Don't think God's rules don't apply to you. Beware of jealousy in ministry. Ever looked at other Christians and thought, They've only had their gifts and talents, so... And then you bury your own. Are you still there? I haven't started preaching yet, so just getting excited, all right? And here's a good one. Beware of getting in a rut. I know some folk, they got in their rut at 25. They died at 25. Nobody noticed till they buried them at 83. They're in a rut a long time. You know what a rut is, don't you, the old saying? It's a grave with the ends kicked out just the book of Numbers. Should we have a look at the book of Numbers now? (laughs) And then you go through, I mean, what do you know, for instance, on all sorts of things, the atoning death of Jesus? What about uh, spiritualities back, you know, everybody's kind of spiritual now, and folk are uh, interested in things like angels, just written something for Christmas on angels. What's the biblical view? Because, you know, you see them appearing here and there, don't you? And a lot of it is kind of nonsense, but they're worshipers around God's throne, executors of His will, messengers at times of revelation, witnesses of God's saving act, and ministers at times of crisis, a whole pile of Bible study stuff. And again, you can go on the Internet and download a whole pile of uh, PowerPoints for it. And then towards the end, becoming a Christian, growing as a Christian, enjoying God, transforming the world, keeping right in your heart, serving the church, and then facing death, coping with bereavement. All that kind of stuff, action replay. It is an amazing. But when I tell you, I personally have sold thousands of these, and nobody's come back for their money back yet. And and what you find is, when you get one, you think, man alive, this is just pure gold. It's, it, the guy who put it together is a remarkable guy. He's from Bir- anybody from Birmingham. Well, yeah, we can pray for you. And um, <laughs> it's really nice to meet you. Like you, love from Birmingham. Um, <laughs> So he, he was from Birmingham. He was a tongue-tied dyslexic 15-year-old in and out of kids' homes, like having a really bad time. And when he started as a, in the co-op as a 15-year-old delivery boy, somebody said to him, Robert, you need a small operation to loose your tongue. But his mother, who was on the game uh, while he was in and out of these kids' homes, she never bothered. He had, a, he had a 10-minute procedure just to loose his tongue. And the surgeon said, Robert, go home, find the biggest book you can, and write it out, and say the words. And he went home. The only book they had in their little Birmingham hovel was a Bible. And over a two-year period, my pal Robert wrote the Bible out and became a Christian. He began to walk, see things, and, he, and suddenly his, this brilliant 3D laterally thinking mind exploded into life, redemptive lift. He's gone on to publish about 100 million copies of the Gospels, all sorts of Christian literature. The guy, he was the guy who at the turn of the millennium, produced 10 million copies of the four Gospels, the Daily Telegraph. He was the brilliant mind behind Back to Church Sunday, which has brought more people. It's gone viral in America, more people back to church than all the Billy Graham things put together. And he doesn't boast about it. He's about 70 years old now. And this is the heartwarming story of him, a boy in his Bible, absolutely fantastic of what the grace of God can do. So I don't know what kind of loser you think you are, but I want to tell you, Jesus Christ takes losers and makes them winners in his kingdom and to his glory and uh, you can have this free if you, you these these retail for 30 pounds but we don't want to give you that uh, you can have one for half price and there are still profits from this that are plowed into making this available in the majority world church for many pastors and leaders around the world this will be the only one they got we just produced it in spanish it's available on uh, cd as well and um, so you know that's and some of the profits of course come to Morland's college as well so uh, there we are, 15 quid. Now listen, it's not far off to Christmas. And if you got a little sticker and put the original price on 30 quid <laughs> and get an extra one, that person who buys you something from the 99 p shop is going to be so so kind of under guilt and condemnation when they say, you spend 30 quid on them. Anyway, they're available at the back. I hope you'll take them and, uh, and pass them on uh, to others. I- I'm not pushing them because... Quote, I need the money, or we need the money, or whatever. That's not the deal. The deal is, I believe you will benefit massively from getting one of these. So forgive the commercial plug, but it'll soon be coffee. You'll be glad to hear. And and so they're over there, and they're available. And I hope I've uh, brought enough with me. Please enjoy. Now, my main task and purpose of being here this uh, weekend is to look into uh, Scripture with you. And I want to turn you to the life of of Joseph and to the book of uh, Genesis, and we're going to have three or four hits through. I'd given you an original program of living with hope, living with trials, and uh, and then first and foremost as we look here today, living with your dreams. But for a a number of reasons, I want to interject. I was going to miss out Genesis 38. Living with Disgrace, and for a number of reasons, I want to interject that, I'm going to, so I know tomorrow morning, I have told they are standalone, each of, each of these talks are standalone, but they're interrelated in the big narrative of Joseph. But um, after coffee, I want to look with you at Genesis 38, Living with Disgrace, uh, and uh, I really believe a very pertinent and poignant message. Um, for reasons that will become abundantly clear. So uh, we're just jiggling our program a little bit, so we're going to have this morning living with your dreams, and uh, we're going to come to this great biblical character, Joseph. So now let's do what uh, all wise Christians always do, and that's read God's Word, because as one of my friends put it, it's really important when Christians come together that they read the Bible, because it's the only part of every service, you can always guarantee is inspired. Well, you've been in some boring ones, haven't you? I mean, not not round here, but hello? Have you been in any services that feel uninspired? But God's word is always inspired. When every other word has been passed away, this word of our God sir, will stand forever. So we better tune in, hadn't we? You know, because the Bible gives us focus and And direction, and keeps bringing us back to these are the words of God. So, what God has said in His Word, He's still saying if we handle it properly and correctly, and we listen to what He has to say. So now let's hear Scripture together. Genesis chapter thirty-seven. Joseph's dreams. Verse 1, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhar and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and couldn't speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, "Uh, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and uh, bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers, with the flocks, and bring word back to me, Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him here comes that dreamer they said to each other come now let's kill him and throw him into one of these systems and say that a ferocious animal devoured him then we'll see what comes of his dreams when reuben heard this he tried to rescue him from their hands let's not take his life he said don't shed any blood throw him into this cistern here in the desert and, and don't lay a hand on him reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father So, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now, the cistern was empty, there was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let, let's, uh, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, uh, he is our brother. That was kind of him, wasn't it? Our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. I like that Anglican tradition. You read the Bible and you say, This is the word of the Lord. And everybody replies, Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almost, thou persuadest me to be an Anglican. There we go. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that uh, whatever denomination or whatever else we are, most of all, we are your people, and we pray in Jesus' name now that you would speak, Lord, in the stillness while we wait on thee. Hush our hearts to listen in expectancy. Speak not only to inform but to transform us and renew our hearts and our minds and restore our vision of you, we ask through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Well, on the 28th of August uh, 1963 in Washington, uh, D.C., about uh, 210,000 people gathered and moved down to the Lincoln Memorial, Washington, to hear a speech delivered by a young, dynamic, American, black Baptist pastor, the famous Martin Luther King, in his I Have a Dream speech. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they'll not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And on and on he went with this amazing speech, I have a dream today. Well it's my task this morning for the next uh, 45, 40, 45 minutes to introduce you to a dreamer too, a young guy who's also got his dreams. And he's a wee bit younger than Martin Luther King, just a mere 17 years of age. Welcome to the narrative of Joseph. And uh, I imagine that Martin Luther King scarcely could conceive how costly and demanding his dreams would be till, what, less than five years later, he was gunned down and assassinated. And imagine if we'd have been talking to Joseph and said, hey, you dreamer, these great dreams you're having, wow, where's that going to take you? I suspect he couldn't even begun to have imagined how costly, how circuitous, how difficult, how demanding over the next 20 or more years of his life those dreams would be till they found amazing fulfillment. I have a number of things I want to tell you from... Uh, the life of uh, Joseph this morning, and uh, let's see if we can move that on, Joseph, living the dream. And the first thing is simply this, be grateful for vision. As Acts chapter 2, echoing Joel, reminds us, there'll come a time when young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams, and I'm sure that means ladies as well. And many of us, thank God, in our our younger years have had our hopes and our dreams and our visions and our high expectations too. It's a wonderful thing. when we've got dreams in our hearts. What kills people is when they've got no dreams and no visions and no hope. You know that quip, uh, you know, last year Steve Jobs died and Bob Hope and Johnny Cash, they've all gone and now we've got no cash, no jobs and no hope. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of folk are in our society are just like that. They have none of these things anymore. And here is Joseph as a 17-year-old And he's beginning to have these large and expansive dreams. Now, we'll see that there are problems with some of his dreams because he seems to be wrapped up in the middle of them. But you must say this, unlike Harry Emerson Fosdyke who said, a man, and he'd say today a person, a woman as well, a man wrapped up in himself makes a very tight parcel. And when we are wrapped up in ourselves, when the only vision is I, me, myself, and personally, we are very, very small people indeed. We are going through a dehumanizing thing that makes us less than anything God wants us to be. But here's a guy who, though there's some pride and some youthful uh, exuberance in there, nevertheless has got a vision and a dream that is bigger than itself. Those dreams are going to have to be checked out. You'll notice in 1 through 11, in that passage we read that uh, there's, uh, there's difficulties with his family appreciating those dreams. Sibling rivalry. Have you ever been in a family with sibling rivalry? I mean, they're, they're just, you know, whistling and applauding and stamping their feet and honking them on. Go on, Joseph, have those dreams. are all going to bow down. Is that how you read the text? You still there? <laughs> and uh, of course... Uh, you know, he's really famous because, and really blessed because he's a whistleblower as well. I mean, you love that when you've got a family snitch, don't you, with your kid brother letting you in. And that's what he does. Hey, Dad, let me tell you, the bit, you know, these, oh, wow, no wonder he's in problems. And, uh, and, of course, he's got another burden to bear. Verse 3, Joseph, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. family favorites. I wonder where uh, Israel, Jacob, got a crackpot idea like that, because of course if you want to destroy your family life, just have a family favorite. Just make sure that if you've got some kids, you know, one of them is daddy's little girl or mommy's little pet lamb and the others know that. And the others know that they were a mistake and they were never planned, etc, etc, etc. Because when you're on the receiving end of that, Boy, does it prime a time bomb. And where did Jacob get a crackpot idea of doing that? I'll tell you where he got it from. Because he himself with his twin brother was the object of family favoritism. His mom thought Jacob was the bee's knees. And his dad, he loved the more rugged Ishmael. uh, Not Ishmael. Jacob and... So he doesn't become an eyesore. He loved Ishmael. Esau, the man of the fields. I mean, Esau would have been in his element here. Jacob would have been here in the, the converted barn. And there's a lesson there, isn't there? Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. And Jacob was a damaged goods. I mean, if he'd if have been used in his brains, if he'd had sort of you know, 2% of his intelligence touched, he would have thought, I can never replicate what my ma and pa did because it cost him years of estrangement away from his brother. But you see, family abuse can come down the generations. We learn things. And, and, and Jacob needed somebody to give him a slap around Baptist circles, of course, in love. Really, he needed somebody to say, do you realize what you're doing to your family? Get a grip, son. You an idiot. You're setting this kid up, you're giving him a special garments, whether it was his amazing Technicolor dream coat, whatever it is. This, It just said, you are special. You know, all the other kids, they get bikes. He gets a big, you know, Bugatti Veyron or something. It's that kind of thing. You're marking him out as a special kid. And when you do that in families, God help you. Is that a word for one or two of you? Because that Belichia beacon of a coat just marked him out. Of course, when you are the family favorite, it can breed in you a certain poise and coolness. And When you arrive, people know that you are God's gift. And you don't often have the emotional intelligence or the soft emotional skills to know you are an absolute pain in the backside to everybody else. And when you've been the victim of abuse, in this case of just emotional neglect, but when it's gone further into physical violence or sexual misdemeanor, man oh my, you can be looking for somebody to scapegoat and that person you really, you should love as a a sibling now becomes a rival. And I say, when you look at Joseph's uh, dreams, although God is going to fulfill them in some spectacular ways, there's a good deal of personal arrogance, isn't there, in them. It's like testimonies. Sometimes you hear a testimony that says, listen to what the Lord has done for me. But I've had too many testimonies where, listen to what the Lord has done for me. And when Joseph's telling his dreams, it's, Hey, hey, you're all going to bow down (laughs) to Get over me. (laughs) The ego has landed. So mixed in with this dream and these dreams from God is this mixed bag of a fair degree of youthful arrogance, lack of insight, basically what we simply call immaturity. You can't judge all that by age, by the way i'm just having coffee with all the new students so caris has already been through and uh, you know a whole pile of other students i've been about halfway through 80 or 90 new students or more great fun uh, and some of them you know at 35 are still emotionally immature and challenged and others at 18 19 are so well glued together <laughs> it's not just an age thing but there is this period called adolescence. (laughs) He's 17. He's just got his driving license. (laughs) He can't vote yet. (laughs) And so, alongside the vision, something's going to have to happen in Joseph to make sure that those, those visions don't become an absolute nightmare. You see, there are times when If God gives you something, you need to exercise discretion. You need to wait. You've got a vision, and you need to let it seep in and incubate and pray for the spiritual maturity to be able to handle it, because some folk just, you know, they've got all the uh, subtlety of a paint stripper, haven't they? They don't have diplomatic skills. It's a joke, of course. You know Sid, Sid Little, the little and large? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. He, he was at the end of uh, Bournemouth Pier a while ago doing a show. And, and uh, he said, by the way, he said, by, as he finished, he said, typically, he said, now, if you've enjoyed this, this has been Sid Little at the end of Bournemouth Pier. And if you haven't, it's been Eddie Lodge at the end of Brighton Pier. And may you live as long as there's a DFS sale on, which means you'll never die. <laughs> but he said this, and joking, of course, he said, oh, he said, the other day, he said, my wife was looking in the mirror. Oh, she said, Sid, look at the state of me. My hair's gone gray. have got big bags under my eyes. It's all flabby under here. Oh, my teeth are going yellow. He said, Well, there's one compensation, sweetheart. She said, What's that? He said, There's absolutely nothing wrong with your eyesight. That's how you die, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and Joseph has that sort of, Mmm, Joseph, keep your mouth shut, pal. Because things have got to happen to him that are going to fulfill the old uh, proverb, a full cup requires a steady hand. And that can only be birthed through some of the problems and pains and difficulties he's soon to experience, because you see, God can manage His plans without us if He wants, but in His mercy He chooses to pull people on board like you and me. uh, Sanders, a leading missionary from another era, talks about when God wants, and again he's, it's, uh, it would be inclusive today, but he says it, of a man, when God wants to skill a man and thrill a man and fill a man, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he cruelly perfects whom he royally elects, with every blow converts him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Now, the narrative makes it clear that Joseph's family and his brothers act absolutely wickedly. Joseph himself was less than smart, and yet through it all, God is using the brokenness and fallenness and even wickedness of His brothers to bring His eternal purposes to pass. That's how God works. God isn't responsible for their evil. God isn't responsible for Joseph's immaturity. But God, in his mercy and in his sovereignty, works his purposes out as year succeeds to year. So, how does he do that? Well, Joseph's going to learn a big lesson. Be grateful for vision. ah <laughs> uh-huh. Joseph, uh, you know your coat of many colours. Oops. <laughs> well, it wasn't quite as um, colourful as this, was it? But he lost it, and that leads us to nothing. <laughs> hey, being ready for nightmares. You ready for nightmares? Walk with me into Joseph now. What, what happens in the rest of this narrative that we read from verse 12 and following is, is quite scandalous, isn't it? He's traveled 50 or 60 miles. He's got his Belisha beacon robe on. Why is he yomping around with that, that robe on? You know, it's like going out in your glad rags, you know, your kind of, you know, your kind of uh, top and tails. It, it marks him out. Joseph, what are you doing going around the countryside dressed like an idiot for but because he's letting them know I'm Joseph (laughs) you know I'm here so he's got the thing he loves and in a matter of days weeks he'll change (laughs) that robe for a prison garment and uh, a slave's garment and eventually a prison garment and the the rest of the narrative till he comes to royal position you suddenly find his youth is stolen away in fact it's going to be 13 years before, when he's 30, he comes to royal position. 13 years in which he's, quote, kidnapped. He's uh, the Count of Monte Cristo. It's the stuff of all great stories and narratives. You know, where he's, he's going to marry the girl and he's shoved in the Chateau d'If, you know, and he's trumped up charges. It, it's, it's a young scouser guy. He, he doesn't want to go, but he says goodbye, the only son of his mom. And he gets on a boat and he says, that way son. He says, I don't want to go to France. You're going to France. And he's wounded. And he's captured at Dunkirk in 1940. And James Stephen Brady, my dad, spends five years in a holiday camp called Stalag 8B, prisoner of war. And suddenly his next five years have just stolen away, like many, of, a, of my dad's generation. Just what happens then? And this is Joseph. Suddenly, everything's going swimmingly well, and he's plunged through the hatred and cruelty of his family into, into a cistern and to deep despair. Over in chapter 42, it talks about his brothers when they're, before they recognize him, how they remember how he pleaded for his life. Now, when we read the Bible, this is really important, you and I, if we know the Bible's a bit, we, we, we've, we have to be careful because we can read it what we call in the flat. We, we know the ending, you know. Anytime you sit down, I sit down, historically as an Evertonian, you become a, a, an expert in, uh, in ancient history for stuff we've won. If I ever sit down and watch the 1966 Cup Final with 2-0 down, I'm never worried because I know the happy ending. We win, right? And you can read the story of Joseph and say, it's all right, Joseph. You know, he wins, doesn't he? We know the result. Let me tell you, Joseph when he was in the pit and Joseph when he's sold off into slavery is not saying, guys, you know, one day, get over it. I'm going to be a musical. <laughs> get the point? You know, one day I'm going to be really famous. I mean, you know, my multicolored, you know, vestments are going to, uh, I'm going to be the stuff of dreams and any dream will do. He doesn't know that. God knows the big story, but Joseph doesn't. He's going through it. And when we read it, we're meant to to feel some of this. He's he's pleading for his life. He's thrown into a pit. You know, Judas says, hey, you know, let's not kill him. Let's get a few bob for him. I mean, who doesn't need brothers like that? I mean, what's going on in the narrative is absolutely scandalous if this was happening today and it does happen today with people trafficking doesn't it these folks should have been locked up and the key thrown away I mean this is uh, I think it was John Silkin years and years ago in the Labour Party when they were punching each other's lights out I mean they never do that now <clears throat> and um, like polit- political parties are and he said in the Labour Party we need more fraternity and less fratricide being killing your brothers. Hey, by the way, we need that in the church, don't we? More fraternity and less fratricide. Let's in love kill each other. You know, i just share this with you in love about him. Dun dun dun, 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 And here's poor old Joseph. And he's plunged into a cistern There's a moderating voice from his eldest brother, uh, the eldest Reuben. He says, let's not take his life. And then he disappears. When he comes back, he he thinks he's dead. By the way, he was the firstborn Reuben. And he should have had the big shout in that patriarchal culture. He says, look, we ain't doing it. Now back off. I'm number one here. And although this little pipsquick and pipsquick. Squeak, an upstart is a real pain. Listen, I'm his elder brother. You just back off. or You're going to have to. But you know why, why he doesn't pull it off? The narrative tells us a bit further back. Because he'd slept with one of his father's concubines. And as a result of that, whatever moral authority he had, Eventually loses the rights of firstborn. Whatever moral authority he had has been lost. Nobody's listening to him. Even his family. You, you need to know that, you see, that we never tire of saying to the students at Morlands, know this. Ability without integrity will lead to liability in ministry. Charisma without character, leads to catastrophe. And Reuben, who should have been there to save his brother, has already lost the plot. Nobody's listening to him. You've got your hands in the till. You're in somebody's bed who you shouldn't be in. You do something that really crosses the line. Don't think anybody's listening to you because you've lost your moral authority. He lost it. A Judah asay comes into the scene and that's going to be fascinating in the narrative because eventually Judah becomes a major player eventually but when they get him what's the first thing to go they take off the richly ornamented robe you know sometimes for god to fulfill his dreams and vision in us, he has to sometimes take from us the thing that we think marks us out as different and makes us special because it's very easy as a Christian to be in love with your gifts rather to be in love with the giver. I know some folk who are in love with their ministry. It's their church, their ministry, their abilities. Sometimes folk are in love with their jobs, aren't they? We've had various folk who started as students at college. They were, were, there's nothing wrong with being good and competent and loving your work. I'm not talking about that, but it's become the idol. And then because of the economic crunch and crash, boom. Mr. Indispensable is out of a job. And God's got his attention. And a friend of mine who'd moved from Scotland, come down to Bournemouth Pool, working for a big bank. Indispensable. And then suddenly, chop, gone. And I remember sitting sitting with him in an office. And just saying to him, I wasn't at malls at the time. Just saying to him, Bob, I think God is saying to you, you need to go and train for ministry. Full time. You've been a bit of a preacher, and what he he so loved was taken because God had something else. And for the last fifteen or more years, he's been exercising a great ministry. Sometimes it's health. It's family problems. the son who breaks your heart, the daughter who gets involved in the wrong crowd, some personal failure. What's your ornamented robe? What's the thing that you feel you couldn't do without, that makes you you? Be careful with those robes, won't won't you? They're easily removed. It's only a loving, growing relationship with Christ that's going to last forever. And Joseph should have, of course, been expecting help from his family, and they let him down. By a mathematical coincidence in the King James Version, the middle verse of the Bible is Psalm 118, verse 8. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man, in people. It's better to trust in the Lord than put confidence in princes, says the next verse. At the end of the day, ultimately, it's only the living God who will never fail you and never let you down. And that doesn't mean we're not grateful for firm and faithful friends. I thank God for such. But sometimes those nearest and dearest can fail us and betray us. Of course, verse 33 and onwards is the big cover-up. Jacob recognized and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And for the next 22 years, there is cover up in this family a dark family secret. The old guy doesn't know that Joseph may still be alive, they've told him he's dead. Is, is his rope. For 22 years, it's hidden out of sight. Are the skeletons in your family cupboard? I'm not against it, but you know, it's always nice to know where you come from, but the massive sort of interest in, in where we've come from, isn't it? Who do you think you are? If you go through your family tree, you'll find there's aristocracy somewhere. Why I'm supposed to be impressed that in the 13th century you were related to a baron of the realm I've never heard of, I'm not really sure, but get over yourself. (laughs) Aristocracy. And you'll probably find the reason you're related is the second thing you'll find in your family tree, illegitimacy. And the third thing you'll find is probably the baron was there because of the third factor, criminality. Hmm. Aristocracy, illegitimacy, criminality. It's all in your family, you know, of course it's not mine, (laughs) of course it is, because they're all cut from the same cloth, and sometimes you'll find there's a whole line of imbecility, Uh, and, and you can't quite understand why you are who you are and why you, and you're not explained just by your nature and your genes and your family tree. Ultimately you're defined as a Christian who you are in Christ, but who you are, who you are is also determined by some of those factors. Nobody has a perfect family, do they? And maybe yours is less than desirable, and, and Joseph's family is a mirror of that. By the way, just so we come up for air, so we don't kind of drown in this, you, you do realize standing back, don't you? that. Air, God is going to work through this family in spite of it all. <laughs> How do we know that? Well, hey, time's really gone. Chapter 37, verse 2. This is the, uh, doesn't this bother you? It always used to bother me in the first reading. This is the account of Jacob, Joseph, a young man. Hang on, you just said Jacob. We, wait, where are we going here? You just said Jacob, and then we hardly hear a Jacob, and suddenly it's Joseph. Why? Well, ten times in the book of Genesis, we are told... This is the account of. It means like here's a fuller story. Here's a fuller account of. Be ready for nightmares. But uh, this is a, uh, apologies to Led Zeppelin, um, Stairway to Heaven. You and I need to know we can be open. To the dream maker. This little phrase, this is the account of, puts the Joseph narrative into a bigger story. It's what we call, before we have our coffee, here's the last piece of jargon. Are you ready for it? Meta-narrative. What did you learn over the weekend with Steve Brady? I learned about meta-narratives. Thank you. I'm seeing my doctor on Monday morning. What's a meta-narrative? Well, I'll tell you what it isn't. We're living in a society that doesn't believe in meta-narratives because they're being sold a lie that they came from nothing and they're going to nothing and if you came from nothing and you're going to nothing let me just bring you up to speed you are nothing and oh, by the way richard dawkins believes that we came from nothing we're going to nothing so he's nothing and what he says doesn't mean anything so why should i listen to him by a strange flip of logic are you still there but i don't believe that at all the bible says nonsense you came from somebody and you're going to somebody and you matter, and everybody matters, because you come from the hands of a living God. And your life may seem puzzling and confused and messed up and screwed up and dysfunctional and pained, and when you realize that God in His mercy writes you into His big story, then you find that you matter, And literally matter matters and everybody matters because we're under the eye of the all-seeing, all-wise God. This is the account of. It's an innocuous phrase, but it's so important because Joseph, you're just a little tiny blob, aren't you? Joseph, listen, God is going to work through you and through you he's going to bring untold blessings, son. Lift up your head, get your head up, son. Because you're part of a bigger, vaster, more complex, more wonderful story than you can ever begin to understand. Ladies, I've got to confess, if I've got this illustration wrong, forgive me, okay? But as far as I can see, not that she uses it a lot these days, with uh, my wife's sewing machine, you've got a little, you know, kind of cotton on the top, haven't you? And the thing comes down and underneath there's a bobbin, right? And it looks, and of course, there's there's more cotton in there. And when the thing's working properly, down comes the needle, it grabs the the thread from underneath, and the top one and the bottom one just, and then you've got your cross stitch or whatever. Is that how it works? Okay, right. I can't do it, but I've told you about it. And God's, God's grace is like that. You may just be like a little, feeling like you're just a little coiled up piece of cotton in a bobbin, and you don't mean anything. And God in Jesus Christ comes to get us and to pull us up and to start stitching us into His wonderful purposes. Do you get the picture? Obviously you don't. Do you get the picture? God wants to do that with you. Whoever you are. However dysfunctional, however screwed up, however messed up. It's called part of His amazing grace. does it for Joseph. Because you see, There's a bigger story. You see, if there's no Judah stepping in, and then Joseph dies, there's no Joseph. And when the famine comes, Judah and all his mates and all his family die. But there is a Joseph, and he goes to Egypt, and through being in Egypt, he becomes, here's a loaded but deliberate phrase, he becomes the Savior of his people. So by all his pains and sufferings, he goes to Egypt and he becomes the savior of his people and through that people, Judah and his line are preserved and eventually from Judah and comes the Jews and hundreds of years later, one day, along comes Jesus. No Judah, no Joseph, no Jews, no Jesus. But there was and there is. One who suffered immensely to death on a cross, to be the savior of his people. This is the big story. Joseph hasn't got it all together yet, but, but it's part of it. So that God, in his great mercy, comes and he's the dream maker and the spirit of God comes and begins to make all things new. Be grateful for vision. Be ready for nightmares. Be open to the dream maker. In, uh, what date was it now? Let me think. Um, The spring of 1955. Not many of us were around then. A brilliant young uh, theology student submitted his thesis to Boston University (coughs) a comparison of the conception of God in the thinking of Paul Tillich and Henry and Henry Nelson Wyman. He was only 26 years of age, but they, they predicted a great future for this guy. But before he went into academe, his first love, he felt he should get some experience. So, so it was that he ended up at Dexter Baptist, Dexter Baptist Church, Montgomery, Alabama. He'd only been there a very short while when some very naughty woman oh disgraceful the 1st of december 1955 her name was rosa parks and she decided to sit in the whites only section of a montgomery bus and all hell broke loose and suddenly this pastor of dexter baptist avenue baptist church had been elected the president of the montgomery improvement association a black american group who were campaigning for civil rights and justice, was was not only shot to communal fame, but to national and ultimately international fame. Dr. Martin Luther King. He wanted with all his heart to be an academic, to be at a Bible college like mine. But Providence strangely intervened and he never, ever fulfilled his, uh, his personal dream. But you know what he did? He lost his dream. But he found his destiny. And I pray this weekend for some of us Even as we lose our dreams, we'll find God's destiny for us. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this amazing narrative of Joseph, so accessible, so even a child can grasp this amazing story, so utterly profound that sometimes we have to work extra hard to see all the little nuances and all the big story that you are telling us. We thank you that the hero of this story is not Joseph. The anti-heroes are not his family, but the great hero is you, our God, who treasures up your bright designs, who works your sovereign will. And as we've just let this narrative wash over us, and you and your mercy have put your finger on some things that need rectifying and other things that need following up, and some dreams to abandon and new visions to get. We pray, Lord, that you would seep into our hearts by your Spirit all that we need to do and to be so we can serve you well. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go for coffee now.